The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We've been studying um, systematic theology. We've been studying um, doctrine of creation, and uh, I think we all know that there's no end to the uh, implications of creation. And uh, we zeroed in a little bit, especially on creation and evolution. And uh, hopefully, there's no evolutionists left here. But if there are, just come and talk to me. There's always more we could say. I'm amazed how many books there are on the topic these days. It's incredible, the number of Christian books on evolution, on fossils, on uh, science, on chance, and DNA, and all kinds of things. So that's a good thing. But tonight we're going to move on. Uh, there's other theological topics that are every bit as exciting, and we need to move on into them. And one of them tonight that we're going to study is the doctrine of providence. Doctrine of providence. And uh, it's going to be a good study. Uh, we're going to look at it, God willing, this week and next week. Um, again, there's more we could study. I actually wrote a paper on John Calvin's Doctrine of Providence. Here it is. So uh, I didn't have time to read it over. I was like, my goodness, back in seminary days uh, when I was getting my Ph.D., uh, I wrote a lot. Those are just a, But there's a lot when it comes to the Doctrine of Providence. Now, when you think of the Doctrine of Providence, what do you think about? What does that mean? Okay, God working sovereignly through natural events. Somebody else. He's in charge of what, Alan? What's he in charge of? Okay, anything that happens, and he turns it into good. Any other thoughts on providence? Brevard, any thoughts on providence? What does that mean to you, since you talk about it all the time? There's a lot of questions. Well, obviously, the doctrine of providence should be connected to the doctrine of creation. It makes sense when you stop and think about it. Um, if there is a living, active creator, then it makes sense that there would be an active sustainer and ruler. We go from God as creator to God as king pretty straightforwardly, don't we? I mean, he made this stuff. He can do what he wants with it. And that makes sense. And that that's why we would connect it logically. If you're writing a systematic theology and you're writing... On creation, the next topic logically would be to go into providence, how God rules. Now, if you were looking through the Bible, you would not find the word providence in the Bible. It's not, it's not a biblical term per se, but it is definitely a biblical concept, a biblical concept. As we believe, if we believe in the doctrine of providence, we'll be protected from certain errors that people have uh, believed along the way. For example, deism, the error of deism. Does anybody know what that is? What does deism teach? Basically that God wound things up and he's just kind of unwinding and he's 
steps aside and lets it just happen. Right. God set up the universe like a, wa- a clock, let's say, and wound it up and just lets it run. He's not involved in the day-to-day events of life. Um, many of our founding fathers in this nation were deists. It was very popular at that time to believe that. And so they would not believe in, a, in the idea of uh, providence that God rules over small events of life. Uh, that God is actually involved in the little things that happen to you in your life. Uh, they would not think that. They would think that those things happen through some scientific uh, occurrences that could be measured. If you knew enough, you'd be able to figure them out. And that God just set up these immutable laws and everything runs according to these immutable laws and He doesn't interfere. Well, if that's true, what, what, what would that do, for example, to your prayer life? I mean, what, what's the point in praying, really, unless it makes you feel better? But certainly if it doesn't make you feel better, there's no real point in praying, right? Because God doesn't get involved. He doesn't interfere. Um, That's deism. Okay, also pantheism, the idea that God is all things and he's in all things, etc. There's very little distinction made between God and all things. Um, You're going to find that more in the Eastern religions, uh, Buddhism and this kind of thing, the life force working through everything. Uh, Well, that's not true because God rules over all things. He is not all things. He rules over them. He made them, He creates them, and then He rules over them. But He's not in them the way that uh, the Eastern mystics would believe. Thirdly, the idea of chance. The idea of chance. What's another word for chance? Luck. Okay. Do you guys ever say good luck to anybody? I, you know, it's really hard for Christians to get out of that habit. You don't, Doris? You don't say good luck? Not anymore, right? <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. What is luck? When you stop and think about it, what is it? Substitute for God. All right. That's interesting. Well, what do, you, what, do you, what do people mean by luck when you say, oh, he's lucky? Or, you know, boy, that was lucky. Or I uh, hope you have good luck on your trip, etc. Um, good luck fishing. You know what? What are we talking about when we talk about luck? That chances fall into the right place. It's almost right place at the right time. Yeah, it's almost like. Okay. All right. Uh, luck almost sometimes becomes personalized, like lady luck, for example, in Las Vegas. You know, I hope lady luck puts her hand on your shoulder tonight or whatever. Um, and so, obviously, the doctrine of providence would rule out luck. Uh, we're not looking to luck. We're looking to God. And we ask Him to rule over those uh, events, those issues. And then, uh, fourthly, the idea of fate or fatalism. Um, this also would be ruled out. Fate is a kind of a cold thing, a sense in which everything's been written, engraved already. And uh, we believe in the decrees of God, and we're going to talk about that, but fate is different. You see, fate is impersonal, isn't it? Uh, a lot of Romans believed in fate without believing in a personal loving God. All right, So all of these four false views are ruled out by a healthy biblical doctrine of providence. Well, what is it? What, how do we define it? Well, Grudem gives us this definition. We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with... You can kind of circle that. It's a little vague, actually. But uh, involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them, two, cooperates with created things in every action 
directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, and three, directs them to fulfill his purpose. If you turn over to the next page, page two, um, you can see then the subcategories of providence are preservation, concurrence, and government. Preservation means he keeps things going the way he, he set them up. He keeps them going. All right. Secondly, he works with them. He, he runs alongside them and is actively involved in how they do to bring about certain purposes. And third, he rules, actively rules over them and directs them that they might accomplish his ends and his purpose. So that's what Grudem means when he uh, or feels that, that the doctrine uh, refers to biblically. Um, those three things. Back on page one there, Louis Burkhoff says that providence is the provision which God makes for the ends of his government and the preservation and government of all his creatures. John Calvin put it this way, God rules not only the whole fabric of the world and its several parts, but also the hearts and even the actions of men. We mean by providence not an idle observation by God in heaven of what goes on in earth, but his rule of the world which he made. For he is not the creator of a moment, but the perpetual governor. Thus the providence we ascribe to God belongs not only to his eyes, but to his hands. Now this last phrase is kind of important. When you look at the word providence, if you know anything about Latin or whatever, what do you see in this word? You've got a, pre you've got a prefix pro, which we usually refer to meaning ahead of time or before, right? This V-I-D or V-I-D-E relates to what? Like video, right? Seeing. So this would really be simply brought over into the concept of foresight. You see that? Foresight connects very neatly to the word providence, but it's not what we mean. That's why it's a little bit misleading to understand the etymology of the word providence. It goes beyond simple knowledge ahead of time of what will happen. When we think of the doctrine of providence, we think that God does more than just sees. And so Calvin said at the end, very neatly, the providence we ascribe to God belongs not only to his eyes, but also to his what? Hands. So what is Calvin saying by that? He doesn't just see, he does. He's active. He's, a, he's an active God, and he does it ahead of time. Okay, He's active ahead of time. This is the doctrine of providence. He's working things out, he has a plan, and he's working it out. Now, we've seen the subcategories of providence. We're going to be working with two of them tonight, preservation and concurrence. Uh, we'll get to the third one, God willing, next time, along with some questions and some different ways of looking at this. Because the fact of the matter is, this doctrine is controversial. It is a controversial doctrine. Why would it be controversial, the doctrine of God's providence? Why is this controversial? Brevard. Right. So there are questions about how providence would work together with the will of the creature. There are serious questions about that. Other thoughts on why this would be controversial? looking at the doctrine of providence. This might even be harder to take in some ways than predestination and election. You know why? Because it has to do with events in your life. Yes? Okay. Okay. 
that we're in charge, we're in control, and we say, well, how does this line up with the doctrine of providence? This becomes especially um, poignant, let's say, when, when a severe tragedy strikes your life. You look at the family of Jessica Santion, right? Um, you know, a, a horrible mistake, a medical error. And you think, well, wait a minute, how does that line up with what we're talking about here tonight? Does it line up? Do they relate? Well, it must relate or else we're not, you know, we're not understanding providence right. So we, there has to be a relationship there. Um, and there have been different ways of dealing with that. So the problem of evil crops its head up here. When we start saying, okay, now the God that you're talking about is so active and energetic and, and involved in everything, but there's nothing but pain and grief and misery in the world. I'm hurting. Things are happening in my life that I don't like. How does that relate to the sovereignty of God? Has God abandoned me? Has He forsaken me? What's going on in my life? If God is a king, how come I'm going through this? If God is loving, how come? You see how these questions start getting poignant. After 911, there, there were certain defenses made where God had to be defended. God was not involved in that uh, tragedy at 911. It wasn't God that did it. Anne Graham Lott said, God is a gentleman and pulled, is pulling back because we've evicted him from our country. And so he's pulled back and just is letting that kind of thing happen. Well, that's, in one sense, it might seem comforting. All right? But the first question we should ask as Christians is, is it biblical? The second question is, is it really, in fact, comforting? If you start thinking that way. I think in the end, you've evacuated yourself of any comfort because then things happen that God had nothing to do with and how, who's to say they won't happen again tomorrow and then again tomorrow after that? And more and rolling on you that there's no control at all. And the universe itself is spinning out of control. And so we're wrestling with it here, aren't we? This is a controversial doctrine. But it also can be comforting. How can the doctrine of providence be comforting? That's right. There's a purpose. There's a purpose. God causes all things to work together for good. First Peter 1 says, even though for a little while we may have had to suffer trials, in all, suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials. This is in First Peter chapter 1. These trials have come, it says, so that your faith which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What do these words, so that, mean? These trials have come so that. What do those words tell you? There's a purpose behind what? Your suffering. There's a reason for it. Now, let me ask you a question. If you didn't know that there was a purpose behind suffering, would that, would that not make your suffering a hundred times harder to bear? I think it would. And so even though this is a controversial doctrine, it is in the end, I think, a comforting doctrine because it gives purpose in suffering and also you know that there's a, an intelligence behind it. The suffering has been measured out to you. It's not grief upon grief upon grief for nothing, but rather that things have been measured to you. Now, they may have been measured in greater doses than you would have ever chosen for yourself. Amen? <laughs> okay. Amen. All right, but yet still, uh, God is wise and good behind it, and we can trust Him. 
you see. So this is a controversial doctrine, but it is also a comforting doctrine. So let's roll up our sleeves and, and dig in. The first aspect of providence that Grudem gives us is the doctrine of preservation. The fact that God uh, not only created the universe, but sustains it. He upholds it moment by moment. That's the foundation to the doctrine of providence. Grudem wrote this, God keeps all created things, number one, existing, and number two, maintaining the properties with which he created them. Now, you might not have thought of this way, but God didn't have to do that, did he? You could be entirely different tomorrow if he wanted to. Yeah, I wish he would do it. Well, you could be a, an orangutan tomorrow. I mean, you could be an orange. I mean, God could do that. But he doesn't do that to his universe. I mean, that would be a pretty discouraging universe to live in, all right? You know, I was married to a beautiful woman yesterday, and today she's an orange. You know, I mean, what is the, what happened? You know, I mean, but God doesn't do that. There's a continuity to life. Even if you don't like how your life is going, still there's a... There's an unfolding. Tuesday follows Monday. Wednesday follows Tuesday. Why so? Because God said so. And it gives order and structure and process and progress to life. That's the doctrine of providence. So God keeps all created things existing and he keeps them maintaining their properties with which he created them at the beginning. All right. Hebrews 1.3. He preserves all things in the universe. It says in Hebrews 1.3, the Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Do you see that? Now, I'm zeroing in on the word sustaining. All right? The word translated sustaining is pharaoh, meaning to carry or bear, commonly used in the New Testament for carrying things from one place to the next. It implies an active, energetic, purposeful control. So God is basically kind of carrying the universe at every moment. Do you see now why God always works on the Sabbath, like Jesus said? My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Well, thank God for that, because if they stopped exerting energy and effort in the universe, what would happen to the universe? It would stop existing. It would stop existing. So he actively sustains everything that he's made. If he stops doing that, it stops existing. That's a very important thing. Now, understand, don't misunderstand, we're, he's not recreating the universe every instant. No, he's just sustaining it. He's keeping it going in the, in the present state that he had originally made. Okay? So he's sustaining all things. How does it say in Hebrews 1.3? By his powerful word. So he continues to give out the word to sustain it at every moment. Now, you can stop right here and see how this is the foundation to providence, the doctrine of providence, right? Think about Jesus now while he was on the cross. He was sustaining the wood on which he was being crucified. Think about that. That's striking, isn't it? He's sustaining and upholding the nails that were going through his arms, holding them together while he was dying by them. That's, that's hard to understand, isn't it? If he chose not to sustain them, they would cease existing. All right? He didn't need 12 legions of angels to protect him from the arresting party. He could have willed out of existence those who came to arrest him. But he doesn't operate that way. He sustains all things by his powerful word, keeps them going. He keeps bullets together that are flying through the air toward little children and killing them. He keeps those things together. And if he doesn't, they fly apart. And if you say it isn't God that keeps that bullet together, then let me ask you what keeps it together. 
It must be God. The devil doesn't do that. So you can see now why we're going to have to deal with the problem of evil. We have to struggle with that and how it works. Okay? But I'm saying that he does, in fact, sustain all things by his powerful word. Keeps them together. Very challenging, but that's the foundation of the doctrine that we're teaching. Also, it says the same thing in Colossians 1.17. He, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things do what? Well, they hold together. They hold together. Again, you can see. Well, and we've talked about this verse before. The Greek verb is sunistemi. It means that they, they adhere or conhere. They hold together. All right? Things stick together. Do you realize that? That things are made of things that have stuck together? Any of you who have been through our creation evolution thing, you know what we're talking about, even at the molecular level. It's, it's like a, a tinker, set, tinker toy set that God has built up from little things to big things. From little things to big things. We were just talking about that even before we started. God made a universe that's made up of atoms. So God actually cares about little things. He really does. He cares about little events. There are no little events. Everything's big. Because in the end, everything's made up of little things. Do you think it was a small thing for the woman or man that carried the jar of wine vinegar to the foot of the cross the day Jesus died? Well, maybe a small thing to them. But it was huge in redemptive history because it fulfilled the prophecy so that Jesus could drink wine vinegar before he died. All right? Was it a small thing that they decided on 30 pieces of silver for Judas? No, it was big because it was prophesied, you see. So the universe is made up Physically, I mean, the universe is made up of atoms. It's made up of small things. So also history, made up of little events. And you don't understand the significance of them, and neither do I, but God does. And so he's weaving together something here that's beyond our comprehension, that it's uh, all made up. Now, on the physical level, he does hold all things together. Uh, if you look at the atom, for example, we've talked about this before, it's made up of protons and neutrons. It's surrounded by electrons. That's the, the, the nuclear theory that we're working with, and it seems to uh, explain m many uh, phenomena, and so we accept that as a good theory. Um, the uh, protons have a pro positive charge. Um, you, you know enough from, uh, from physics to know that like charges do what to one another? They repel one another. You take the positive end of a bar magnet and the positive end of another bar magnet, what are you going to do? You're going to find that they just can't get close to each other. They're going to, if you turn them around, they'll, they'll come together, okay? Well, that leads you to ask a question, well, if that's true, then how do you get a whole bunch of positively charged protons sticking together in a, in a uranium uh, nucleus, for example? Why do they stay together? Well, the nuclear, uh, nuclear physicist tells you because of the strong nuclear force, SNF. That's just a name. The fact is we don't really know what it is. It holds together. Well, Colossians 1.17 tells us that the strong nuclear force is actually Christ. Well, what does that mean? Suppose Christ decides not to hold the nucleus together anymore. It'll fly apart. It won't exist anymore. It will disappear. <coughs> So, he holds together all the stuff. He's holding you together right now. So, I don't feel like I'm together. <laughs> well, but he is. He's holding you together. And he will continue to hold you together. That's you know, an interesting thing that we're talking about here because he also upholds your decisions. If you decide to overeat and gain weight, he'll hold that together too. You know, isn't that funny? I mean, you don't wake up the next morning with a new body, you know? It doesn't happen. If you want to lose weight, you have to do certain hard things. You know, it's, it's just an amazing thing that we're looking at tonight, beginning to look at, is how God upholds 
decisions that you make upholds history. That tomorrow follows today. The events of tonight matter. As we're waiting with breathless anticipation to see what's going to happen in Iraq, the things that are going on right now are going to make a difference in world history. They really will. They'll make a difference, a big difference. All right. Moving on, there's other verses here. E ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, gives us a, ne a Nehemiah 9:6. You are the Lord. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all of the, their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. So God preserves them. He keeps them together. Second Peter 3:7 says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. And then look what it says next. Being kept. That's important. Underline that. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. What do we mean by being kept? First of all, what is being kept? Read the beginning of the verse and you'll know. The heaven and earth and how by the, by the word, by the word of God. So again, like Hebrews 1.3, this sustaining and upholding is connected to the Word of God, right? The Word of God is important, all right? So by the same word, the present heavens and earth are being kept. They're being held together. All right, but they're also what, according to 2 Peter 3, 7? They're reserved for fire. That's interesting. What does it mean that they're reserved for fire? Well, look at the next verses that I've quoted there. 2 Peter 3, 10 and following. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What is the day of the Lord? It's the end of the world. It's the end of everything. It's the second coming of Christ and all of the end that comes with it. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. You know, it's funny, in this whole Second Peter 3, this whole section, he's likening the scoffing attitude of people about the second coming of Christ to the scoffing attitude of the generation before the flood. Same thing. Scoffing, saying everything goes on as it always has. Nothing, nothing's different. And so I don't believe that any water is coming. Oh, but water did come. And the people that were on the ark survived and those that were not on the ark did not survive. He says, in the same way, the present universe is reserved for what? Not water, fire. Like that old poem, God gave Noah a rainbow sign, no more water, fire next time. That's what that poem means. And that's exactly what Peter's getting at here. It's not going to be water the next time. It's going to be fire. And let's see what it says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. What does that mean it'll come like a thief? That's it. Suddenly, without, without any announcement... I'm studying in Exodus in, uh, 7, 8, 9, the, the cycle of plagues. There's, a, there's an interesting pattern. There's three sets of three plagues. First two get a warning, third one no warning. Then two warnings, no warning. Two warnings, no warning. That's very interesting, isn't it? I, I think it tells me something about the Lord. He doesn't owe us the warning, but he's gracious and does give us a warning. But he doesn't owe it to us, and he may just not give us a warning. Well, this time he's saying the actual end will come without any announcement, without any warning. It's just going to come. All right? The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. How are they going to do that? How are the heavens going to disappear? Well, the elements, it says, will be destroyed 
by fire. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you think it's going to happen? We've already talked about the elements. The Greek word that's used here, elements, is stoicheia. Anybody who knows anything about chemistry has heard of stoichiometry, for example. It's an analysis of compounds by atomic weight. So we're talking about actual elements. The very basic elemental structures of the universe are going to disappear. How do you think they're going to do that? Could it be that God will stop holding them together? Well, what happens to a nucleus when God stops or when somehow it stops hold, being held together? Tremendous release of energy, right? My goodness, I'm hypothesizing here. I don't have any idea, but could it be the fire will be this incredible, almost nuclear melting of the elements? Peter, who's just a rustic fisherman here, is talking about elements being destroyed. That's amazing. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Uh, verse 11, he preaches at us a little bit here. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? <laughs> what kind of life should you live? He asks that question. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And then he tells us again, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So he's told us twice now. I mean, this is not, it's not like, oh, just a, 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 a quick comment, by the way. He says it several times about fire and elements melting and all that. So basically, all of the physical stuff around us will disappear at some point with immense heat. What that tells me is that is the end of providence. That's the end of him sustaining all things by his powerful word. But it's not the end of everything because in its place, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? And then he'll sustain that place forever and ever. So that's what we mean when we talk about preservation. All right? Uh, page three, um, I've already described that. So God specially preserves or upholds all things. He's holding your car together right now. <laughs> Again, not well. <laughs> you, know? you know, he's holding you together. He's holding everything together. And he's committed to doing that until the end. Now, he told you the end will come unannounced like a thief in the night, but it will come. And so that is the doctrine of providence. Secondly, he, he specially preserves human beings. <clears throat> That's one of the most important aspects of providence. God upholds human beings. He sustains them. Acts 17.28, For in him we live and move and have our being. You see that? We, we have our being. We exist in God. He sustains us. Job 34.14, listen to this. If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to the dust. That is true, isn't it? If God wanted to, that would be the fate of the world. He could do that. But he has not chosen to do that. Psalm 104.29 says the same thing. Uh, Isaiah 46.4 says, Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. That's very personal, isn't it? God made you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And he has been sustaining you all of this time. That's a very important thing to remember. I remember uh, preparing to do a funeral. And uh, as I did, the family came to talk to me and we met together and we were discussing the person and also the, the ceremony, the funeral itself. And I fear that the people that I was discussing the funeral with were probably not believers in Christ. I was saddened by that, but the person said to me with a great deal of hostility, uh, it really bothers me when funerals talk too much about God. I want this funeral to be about mother. 
It's not about God, it's about mother. I was shocked. I didn't know if I should leave the room quickly, um, but I had a sense that God would be patient and uh, hopefully I hoped in the end she would repent from such a terrible statement. But what I did say is I said, well, I think the reason that pastors speak so much about God at funerals is because it was God, in fact, that knit your mother together in her mother's womb and sustained her and carried her every day of her life. And so he should be given the credit for that. And they backed down quickly at that point and said, well, of course, God should be mentioned. But just say some things about mother. I said, well, I always do. So even to your old age and gray hairs, I'm the one that sustains you and carries you. Praise God for that, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful how God has carried us this far, sustained us and been with us all along? I don't want to live in a deist universe, an impersonal universe where there's no sustaining God, no personal God carrying us to our old age and gray hairs. I want a God who knows me and who loves me and carries me. James 4.15 says, Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live. That's all you need from that verse. All right? If it is the Lord's will, we will live. But it goes beyond that. And do this and that. <laughs> what does that mean? And do this and that. If it's the Lord's will, we will go to Kroger's and buy... Yeah, that's right. If, the, if it's the Lord's will... We'll do the errands we have planned today. Isn't that the doctrine of providence? Yeah, I think so. Have you ever had plans and it didn't go that way? (laughs) What I'm saying to you is, have you ever had plans and it did go that way? All of it's under providence. All of it. And so God rules over all these things. If it is the Lord's will, we will live. And if it is the Lord's will, we will do this and that. That's what James tells you you should say. James is teaching providence here, isn't he? He's saying you should say, if it is the Lord's will, I will live. And if it is the Lord's will, I'll do this or that. So that's the doctrine of providence. And so he's giving it to us so that we might rejoice and delight in God's rule. Okay. Thirdly, he preserves properties or attributes. What do we mean by that? Well, he keeps you who you are. He does. He sustains you. And not only that, he preserves everything the way it is. God, in preserving all things that he's made, also causes them to maintain the properties with which he created them. Water continues to act like water. Grass continues to act like grass. Have you ever, by the way, drunk like um, uh, orange juice thinking it was milk or the other way around? It's like darkened kitchen and you thought that that... uh, The plastic containers are about the same these days. I remember pouring some uh, water thinking it was... uh, 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 I mean, pouring some milk thinking it was water and drinking it and spewing it out into the sink thinking it was the most disgusting water I'd ever drunk in my life. Can you imagine if God did that to the physical universe? If you never knew what you were going to get when you, when you turned the faucet on in the sink, you know? I'm so glad that God sustains properties and attributes, all right? So that they continue to behave like the way we know they behave. Grass continues to act like grass. Uh, the atoms in the periodic table continue to have their properties. Lead and gold and silver continue to behave in their ways. And, and argon and oxygen and all those behave their ways. Um, that's right. Meanwhile, people maintain their personalities and their physical properties. Lions continue to behave like lions. We've already talked about the fact it's not a new creation moment by moment, but sustaining. Now, the conclusion for this says God's providence provides the only true basis for science, doesn't it? I mean, you see that? What's the point in studying something if God didn't do this? Right? Would there be any scientists if God changed everything every day? If the next time, I mean, what's the point? 
You know, Newton's laws of motion say that objects in motion tend to stay in motion. Objects in rest tend to stay in rest. We wouldn't be able to say that objects in motion or rest tend to do anything. I don't know what God's going to do next. You know, he's a very unpredictable being. <laughs> no, but those laws that the deist so delighted in are were pretty close to immutable because that's what God does with providence. They went too far in saying that even God himself couldn't break those laws and so they disbelieved the miracles. That's why Thomas Jefferson rewrote the New Testament because he went too far with providence in this sense in that he said, well, neither then could Jesus walk on water or raise the dead. Well, that's too far now because God isn't under his physical laws. He doesn't have to follow them. He can do anything he wants, all right? But even he in the time on earth, have you noticed how much Jesus submitted to physical laws? Do you notice what he did after he walked on water? What did he do? He got in the boat. I think that's interesting. What do you need the boat for? You know, he's already proved he doesn't need the boat. <clears throat> that's where the disciples were. But the disciples could have walked on water too. Peter proved that. But at any rate, the fact of the matter is he upholds natural law. That's the way he usually operates. And so he got in the boat because that's what we do. We get in boats. And that's what he's going to do, upholding these things. This also upholds technology, doesn't it? It makes technology worthwhile. The things you study in a laboratory, if you determine a principle, it'll work worldwide, won't it? And so the gasoline you put in your car for $2 a gallon or whatever we're up to now, it'll work a year from now. It's just principles that God upholds. The doctrine also provides basis for all human relationships, like marriage, for example. We already talked about that humorously. Aren't you glad God sustains your spouse? Well, maybe not. Maybe you wish that God would radically transform your spouse. But God is, that's a different theological topic known as <laughs> sanctification. And God does that in a different way. All right? He works those things differently. But uh, at any rate, he upholds uh, us moment by moment. Uh, doctrine, this doctrine also shows the power of God over the devil and his demons, doesn't it? They are not fighting on equal plane. We don't believe in a good versus evil struggle in the universe. How do we know that? How does this doctrine teach that? That God and the devil are not equals. He's sustaining the devil's existence. Now you might say, why is he doing that? Well, that's a good question. But I think it, it cannot be denied theologically that God is sustaining and upholding the devil. Because God created him. Now, he didn't create him the devil. He created him good. But he created him and God is choosing to continue his existence and will continue to, co to choose to continue his existence for a long time to the end of the world. Now, again, you may say, that doesn't make sense. That's not the way I would do it. Well, that may be true, okay? But it is the way our, our sovereign, loving, and wise creator is choosing to operate. He's choosing to ho hold the devil's existence up so the devil continues to exist. If God decided to cause the devil to cease to exist, would he, in fact, cease to exist? Instantly. That's why the devils were terrified of Jesus when they saw him. Remember Legion, the demoniac of the Gadarenes? He was absolutely terrified of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had that kind of power. It's not an equal struggle <clears throat> at all. He can just, you're, you're out of existence. But the fact of the matter is he's not going to do that. He's going to continue sustaining the devil's existence eternally in hell, in the lake of fire. And that's just what he's chosen to do. So he upholds these things. At any rate, this is um, uh, connected to preservation. Any questions about preservation? It's the foundation of where we're going in the doctrine of providence. So it's important to get this, uh, the idea that God upholds or sustains all things that he's created. Secondly, concurrence. What uh, definition do we give? God cooperates <clears throat> with created things in every action 
directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Boy, is that loaded. Boy, is that loaded. He cooperates with created beings and created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Very, very interesting. Scriptural support. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him, namely in Christ, we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Now, works out everything is energeo, from which we get the word energy. So we see that God is energetic in working out a plan. What, are the, what does Ephesians 1.11 tell us about that plan? How comprehensive is it? What does he work out according to his plan? Everything. Everything? Well, yeah, everything. Well, what kind of everything do you mean? <laughs> everything, everything. And we'll talk about categories of everything, but that's what it says. Okay, areas of application. Well, does it extend to inanimate creation? Yes, it does. All right, Job 38:32. God, speaking to Job, says... Remember how God is healing Job by rebuking him? Isn't that interesting? You know, Job's going through a horrendous time and God heals him by rebuking him. And Job had, had never felt so good in his life when God got done rebuking him. You know, I'd, I'd heard about you with the ear, but now my eye has seen you and I'm totally satisfied. Whatever you want to do with me is fine, just that I've been with you. It was sufficient for, for Job just to be with God. But in this series of rebukes, he basically says, Job, you know, you've been questioning me. You've been questioning my wisdom. You've been questioning my goodness. Okay, well, let me ask you a question. If we put you in charge of the universe, would you be able to do the following things? This is the job description, okay? <laughs> okay, if I were to abdicate in favor of you and you were going to sit on the throne, see little Job with a huge crown, you know, kind of dangling around his neck. But uh, there it is. I mean, that's what we do, though. We do that in our imaginations. We dethrone God and put ourselves there in His place. Well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Well, that's true. But you're not God, and God knows more than you, and He's more powerful than you, and He's doing bigger things than you. All right, but this is what He says, Job 38:32. Can you bring forward? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons, or lead out the bear with its cubs? This is speaking of stars. He's implying what by that question? Yeah, but what is he implying about his own activities? He does. he does that. God moves the stars relative to the earth. Yeah, he does. All right. Um, can you do... Well, no, I, <laughs> I haven't tried, but probably not. Uh, how about this? Uh, Matthew 5.45. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is an activity of God. He does that. Psalm 148, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, or even better, Job 37. It says, He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that all men he has made may know his work. He stops every man from his labor. Right? I mean, think of an agrarian society when the hailstorm comes. Where are they all? They're all running for shelter. Right? And he can do that. <laughs> I, hey, watch what I can do. I can stop you from work. And that's what the verse says. So that all men that he has made may know his work, he stops every man from his labor. They dropped their implements and ran, right? That's the sovereignty of God. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes from out of its chamber. The cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice 
and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. Do you see that? He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. So it's either a punishment or it's, or it's a, a blessing to show his love. That's what the verse says. And this is what our God does. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? So do, does God rule over inanimate objects in the universe? Well, yes, he does. He makes grass grow for cattle. Well, he didn't make grass grow in my yard last year. I tried, all right? But you remember the drought and all that? I had huge burned out over areas. Um, but that was God's choice. He chose not to rain on North Carolina much of last summer. You remember that. You remember how low the water table got. But we must say it was God who chose not to do that. And therefore, it's very reasonable in time of drought for us to do what? Pray. To pray and ask God for rain. Is that unscientific? No. I think that God brings rain. I think that God withholds rain as an act of judgment. I don't know that this withholding is a specific act of judgment on me or on this nation. I'm not going to say that. But I think we should assume it. It's safe to assume. And we should get on our knees and ask God. You know, most of the West has been in drought for months and months and months. It's dry out there, very dry. And so people out there, Christians, I'm sure, have been on their knees much asking God for rain. All right? Secondly, animals. God sovereignly rules over animals. Psalm 104 is one of the most spectacular psalms in the entire Psalter. It's just an incredible display of, the, of the, just the majesty of God ruling over all things. Uh, there's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures. The thing, I, I cut in here because I didn't want to read the whole psalm, but I really would like to read the whole psalm. He talks about little rock badgers, little hyrax, which is up there, way up high in the mountains, living in cracks and, and sucking moisture out of moss and lichen up in the rock. God made it. And he provides for it. And it survives up there because God opens his hand and provides. But then he says, there's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, with living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. Do you see that? Verse 27. Who feeds all the animals on earth? God does. According to Psalm 104, verse 27. They look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Okay, stop right there. If that's true of us, then what should you do before you eat? You should thank him. Didn't Jesus, every time you see him eating, he stops and gives thanks. Remember before feeding the 5,000? Before feeding the 4,000? Remember after he rose, was raised from the dead on the road to Emmaus, he stopped and gave thanks to God for the food. Every time. It's not always recorded in Scripture, but you can get but every single time the son looked to the father and said, thank you for this food. Every time. All right, so it says, when you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die. Do you see that? Does that include people? Yes, it does. And so, in effect, God kills everybody that ever died on the face of the earth. That's what it says. And I, I feel that it's good for us to understand that because could God have enabled that person to keep living? Oh, no question about it. There's no question about that. We forget sometimes that our race is under a death penalty. The wages of sin is death. Remember Adam and Eve? That's still under effect. Death is, is according to 1 Corinthians 15, the final enemy. It's not been removed yet. And so it's the last enemy to be removed. 
And so that's why Christ wept before Lazarus' tomb before he raised him from the dead because we're all going to weep because of death. Death hurts and it breaks up relationships. But anyway, it says here, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the earth. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. I think about spring. Every spring is not some automatic seasonal thing. It's something God does. He sends his spirit and renews the face of the earth. Matthew 6:26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, said Jesus. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then Matthew 10:29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father? What does falls to the ground mean? Dies. So in verse 6:26, he's providing for them. They're eating. In 10:29, they're dying. And Jesus said, both of them according to the will of God. That's what he's saying. All right, so he rules over inanimate objects and things. He rules over animals. Does he rule over seemingly random or chance events? Yeah. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. The lot is a form of like a dice, right? Every decision comes from the Lord. God rules over every dice roll. I saw in the, in the newspaper a photograph of one of those church signs. You know how people put slogans up on signs, kind of catching? And basically it said, God has heard your prayer and wants you to know he doesn't care who wins the ACC tournament. <laughs> I disagree. I do. And I don't disagree because I'm a this fan or a that fan. I disagree because of the doctrine of providence. I think God cares a great deal who wins the ACC tournament, but he's just playing a different game than we are. All right? He knows... Who, who is rooting for who, what coaches, what players are involved, what effect it's going to have on their lives. It's just so much more complicated than we ever imagined. And so if he cares about what every dice rolls out, he sure cares who wins a tournament cared about almost religiously and passionately by thousands of people. If it's that big, he certainly cares. If he cares for the little thing, he cares for the big thing. So does God care who wins the ACC tournament? You heard it here. Yes, he does. Now, I didn't tell you he's rooting for this or that team. I didn't say that. I'm just saying he's doing bigger things than we could ever imagine with mundane things like basketball tournaments. He cares who loses. And in some cases, he wants so-and-so to lose, even Christians, so that they can go through certain experiences that he has ordained for them to go through. To build character, that's right. Okay, so God rules over seemingly random or chance events. God sovereignly rules or providence events fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature as well. Now, wait a minute. How can an event be fully caused by God and fully caused by a creature? How can that be? Well, that's complicated. Now we're getting into the kind of the, some of the rub or the difficulties of providence. We could say that there are natural scientific causes for a hailstorm, couldn't we? If you're a meteorologist, you could be able to describe them. Does a Christian meteorologist believe that because they can describe the wind patterns that create a hailstorm, that God didn't do it? No. God did it this way. You see what I'm saying? Or we think he did it this way, but either way, he did it. And this is what science tells us happens with a hailstorm. You see what I'm talking about? Don't trust science too much. Don't put it on a level with theology because the Bible tells us straight that God did it. So we don't have to wonder, did God do it? He did. This is how we think he did it, okay? Well, the same works with humans as well. God did it through these people in this way. Say, well, wait a minute. That was an evil thing. How did it happen? Well, that's where we're getting into it. We're going to talk about it. 
Okay? But God fully does it and the people fully do it too. All right? When it comes to events caused by humans, we hesitate. And Grudem wrote this, and I quoted it at length. The doctrine of concurrence affirms that God directs and works through the distinctive properties of each created thing so that these things themselves bring about the results we see. In this way, it is possible to affirm that in one sense, events are fully 100% caused by God and fully 100% caused by the creature as well. However, divine and creaturely causes work in different ways. The divine cause of each event works as an invisible behind-the-scenes directing cause and therefore could be the primary cause that plans and initiates everything that happens. But the created thing brings about actions in ways consistent with the creature's own properties, ways that can often be described by us or professional scientists who carefully observe the process. These creaturely factors and properties can therefore be called secondary causes of everything that happens, even though they're the causes that are evident to us by observation. What is all that saying? Oh my goodness. All right, well, here it is. God is the great causer. He is the great mover. His is the plan. All right? But he works through people who have their own goals, aspirations, and ambitions. Right? What was Judas's goal with Jesus there at the end of Jesus' life? What was his goal? 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because he was greedy. Is there evidence that Judas was greedy? Yes. I think the betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver is evidence enough. But he also was consistently helping himself to the money bag. He was entrusted to it. And he was helping himself to it. He was consistently greedy. That was his nature. Did God use that greedy nature to accomplish his ends? Yes, he did. Is Judas going to be judged for his greed? Yes, most certainly he will. Does something good come out of Judas's betrayal of Christ? Yeah, we get to go to heaven. Thank God for Judas betraying Jesus. Now you could say, that's, that's strange. That was a wicked thing to do. Yes, it was. It was very wicked. It was wicked to kill Jesus. I think it's the most wicked thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. Because nobody else is pure and perfect like Jesus. And he was crucified. All right, That's a wicked, wicked thing. And that's how we get to heaven. This is the doctrine of providence at work, isn't it? I mean, God involved in a very evil thing and bringing out incredibly good things from it. And not only bringing it out, like he's reacting to it. Uh-uh. He brought it about. He did it. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. So that's, that's kind of how it works. God is 100% the cause of Christ's, Christ's crucifixion. But also, so is, so is Judas, and so are, are the Jewish leaders, and so is Pontius Pilate. 100% the cause of Jesus dying on the cross. Or you could say the Romans that executed him, the actual centurion who drove the nails through his wrist. 100% cause of Jesus' actual death but God was the one who caused it. I'm going to give you an illustration right uh, here right now that's later in. Let's see where it is. Yeah, page 7. Uh, it fits very well here. It's an analogy of an author writing a play. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, the character Macbeth murders King Duncan. The question could be asked, who murdered King Duncan? Well, the answer is Macbeth. Another answer is Shakespeare. Shakespeare murdered him. Do you see how both are 100% true? Who murdered him? Let's say it's fictional and has no connection to history. I'm not asking a historical question, but one within the story. Who murdered him? Well, you could really say 100% true that the character Macbeth murdered King Duncan. 
But we can also say 100% true that the author who wrote the play accomplished it as well. And it would be wrong to say, hey, I think it was Macbeth and not Shakespeare. Well, it wouldn't make any sense. Shakespeare wrote the play. Well, then you could say, well, I think it was Shakespeare and not Macbeth. Well, that wouldn't make any sense either. Then you don't have a play, right? You had to have the character. You see what I'm saying? So Shakespeare used the character to accomplish the death that he intended. You see? It's kind of complicated, isn't it? But God is the author of history. And he works through human beings like you and me to accomplish those ends. We'll talk more about what to do if you can't understand the doctrine of providence. We'll, we'll get there, all right? <laughs> it is complicated. But this is what the Scripture is teaching. God fully planned the death of Christ and brought it about. But he did it through people's uh, wickedness and through their evil. All right. So God rules over, on page, back on page 5, events fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature as well. He rules over the affairs of nations. This is timely for us tonight, isn't it? He rules over the affairs of nations. Job 12.23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. Psalm 22.28, it says, Dominion, that's rule, belongs to the Lord and he rules over nations. Now, you know enough about God in reading the scripture. Is this a merely theoretical or titular rule? Is it, is it an honorary diploma that he's granted from, you know, some minor university or accredited college and he puts it up on his wall and looks at it from time to time? Oh no. He actively rules this universe. This is not a, a, a title of honor. It's not a theoretical thing. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords and he exercises that rule. Uh, there's so many scriptures on this, you don't have to work hard to find them. Many, many places. Uh, Acts 17.26, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You mean like my address? Yes, your address. Do you all have those address stickers made so you don't have to write it over and over? God knew what your address was before you were born. He said, well, I've moved many times. That's all right. God has mental capacity to keep up with your moves. Uh, he knows. He determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. Uh, Acts 14, 16. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. All right, he may have let them go their own way, but he had the power to do that. That's what's implied in the verse. He rules over them and let them go their own way. All right, and then Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson, didn't he? The hard way. Who was arrogant and boastful and vaunting himself against God, and God turned him into an animal, Remember? He said, okay, you're going to think like an animal? I'll make you an animal. And so for seven years, he was out being drenched with the dew of heaven and eating grass. And his hair grew long and his nails were long like an eagle's. And he was disgusting to look at. And certainly, I don't know who changed his fodder, you know, but what a job, you know, to take care of the king. <laughs> How's the king doing today? Well, he ate more than usual. Did you water him? Yeah, I changed his water. He's doing all right. I don't know. What an odd thing, you know? But here's this glorious, powerful uh, Nebuchadnezzar turned into an animal. And at the end of the seven years, he lifted his eyes toward heaven. And God saw it and changed his heart back to the heart of a man. And his glory and, an honor, and his honor as king was given back to him. And he sat on the throne again. And he ruled. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar wrote after that experience. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. By the way, do you know where Nebuchadnezzar ruled? Iraq. That's it. That's where he was. He ruled over the same piece of ground that we're probably fighting over tonight. 
I mean, really, it's, it's just, that's where Abraham came from. Ur of the Chaldeans, it's right up that same highway that goes from Kuwait. I mean, it's just there. That's it. Amazing. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom rules or endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? That is absolute and total authority over the governments of men. He rules over all those things. And then finally, He rules over all aspects of our lives. I'll read these quickly, not all the verses. You can read them later. He rules over our daily provision, giving us our daily bread. He rules over life decisions of every kind. You make plans, but God overrules them for His own glory. He rules over your success or failure. Psalm 75, no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings down one and He exalts another. Every Olympic medal that's ever been given, God gave it, really, ultimately. Children, God gives children. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. It's not an accident when you have a child. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Talents and gifts, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, one of the most humbling and encouraging verses you'll ever find. Who makes you different from anyone else? What's the answer to the question? Are you different from anyone else? Yeah, you are. Who makes you different from anyone else? God did. All right? Now, the second question. What do you have that you did not receive? <laughs> that's right. All things are yours. Really, the only thing that's genuinely yours is your sin. That's the only thing God didn't give you. All right? He didn't hand you sin. What did you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? And then human governments, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. All human hearts, next one, page 7, from his dwelling place he watches over all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. We'll talk next time, God willing. God willing. If we live, if we're still existing next week. We'll talk about the problem of evil. I know it's on the page here, but we're out of time tonight. We'll talk about how it relates to providence, and then we'll get into some problems with the doctrine and how people, theologians, have debated over these kinds of things and how they work it through. All right? Why don't we close? Jim, would you mind closing us in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.